get a chance during communion to go look. It's quite a breathtaking painting. Um, thank you so much, Leif. Um, not just for your skill in art, but um, really the depth um, that you bring uh, with it. We really appreciate you. Um, I'm going to pray real quick. Creator God, thank you so much for your great hope that we find in Jesus coming and coming again. Fill us again with your spirit in such a way that where there's despair in our life and those of us who have maybe lost hope would regain it again today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you guys who have no idea what Advent is because you've never celebrated this, that was me growing up, um, Advent is basically the four Sundays in December where we wait expectantly for the coming of Jesus, which will come on Christmas. Surprise. Um, and that Latin word, Advent, means coming or um, arrival. And we know as kids, as we see presents under the tree begin to pile up, what it's like to wait for something we're really hoping for. And we know that ain't easy. So this year, we decided to do something a little bit different with our Advent series. Let me see if we can get this. Um, you might need a click. There we go. Oops. Let me click again. Um, is that we're going to be telling stories. Um, so Mark and I were praying and thinking, um, the Western evangelical church experience sometimes is very sermon-centric. Um, and so we were like, well, what would happen if we kind of um, shortened the sermon and kind of highlighted more of the voices um, of our congregation and heard stories? Um, so we've been in this year-long theme, if you've been following with us, on belonging and becoming. And how we experience belonging to God, to ourselves, and to one another. And what helps us become more like Jesus. You know, in the last uh, couple months, we've heard stories that moved us, that have changed us. Like Lisa Wen's family's refugee story. The intergenerational stories as we gathered in small tables. As we contemplated on God's story and our own stories at interactive stations. And last week, we heard of the stories from indigenous theologian Lenore Three Stars. So why stories? Why are stories important? Well, I read in a Harvard Business article, which I normally never read, so I'm really proud that I could say that. Um, there is a neuroeconomics professor who did a study on why our brain loves a good story. Well, we have something in our brain that's kind of like a security alarm that kind of goes off when we're scared. It tells us when something or someone is safe or not. And what a good story does is it produces this neurochemical called oxytocin. I think it's my favorite one. Um, I call it the love hormone. And oxytocin, what it does, it's in, in the storytelling, it actually is called the key it's safe to approach others' signal in the brain. 
The study shows that storytelling actually enables us to trust, to show kindness, to have cooperation with others, to love, to forgive, to show empathy, to help other people and ourselves become more just and merciful. Storytelling connects us and it unites us with people from different backgrounds and it invites us not just to be included, but also to include. Storytelling helps us belong and become more like Jesus. And listening to good stories from others produces the kind of love that drives out all fear. It's the safe to approach others mechanism. So what's going to happen is that each week in Advent, we will tell the biblical story of Jesus' birth narrative from the Gospel of Luke that centers on an Advent theme of hope, joy, peace, and love. And then we'll also invite congregants um, to, who've prepared kind of to tell their personal stories of how they've experienced one of these attributes of God in their life. And today is focused on hope. So a great resource. Anyone ever heard of the Bible Project? Um, so the Bible Project is, um, it's a Bible project, um, where they make these really cool videos um, about the Bible and different themes and stuff, and this is how they explain biblical hope. Biblical hope um, in the Old Testament is the word uh, yahal, which means to wait for, or it also means to kava. Oh, there we go. So kav is actually a cord. It's like a rope. And when you pull it, it creates a state of tension as you're waiting for something to happen or to be released. So hope is based on a person. Biblical hope is based on a person, not just optimism based on circumstances, but rather it's about looking back on God's character of faithfulness. In the New Testament, elpis is the word, the Greek word. And it describes anticipation, like the anticipation the disciples felt when the tomb was empty. Paul says that it's El Peace of glory, the hope of glory, based on, again, a person, not just circumstances. Christian hope is this waiting for all of humanity to be rescued from evil, from injustice, and from death. It is a choice to believe that there is a God who can bring new life from death and can make beautiful things out of the dust. Even something crazy like a crucified man or a geriatric pregnancy or a virgin birth. And today our biblical story is on the Annunciation of Hope. Um, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome, or your phone, you can open up to um, Luke 1. And I'll also have scripture on the screen so you could do um, a little mixture of both. So the Gospel of Luke um, begins with a story about two cousins, two cousins that were about to be born. And King Herod was the president at the time, and he was a bit of a power-hungry, very unjust, sort of egotistical guy. It was so bad that later he would initiate a racial genocide against all the Jewish babies because he was so paranoid that one of them was going to take him out of office. The Jews of that time had been oppressed by Herod's kingdom. Fear filled the air, and crosses filled the hills. The backstory of all of this is that they had many kings who were supposed to help them live under God's laws, 
to love God wholeheartedly, to love their neighbor as themselves. But over and over and over again, these kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. There were a few kings that did good, a few, but eventually they died. And when another evil king would come, more suffering and pain would come with it, especially for the most vulnerable, the widow, the foreigner, the orphan. And God continued out of a great love for the people and for a truth to his own promises. He would send prophets to these kings to say, please return back to what is good and godly. But they continued over and over to choose their own power, their own comfort, their own consumerism, their own personal gain. And God was upset and said, okay. And he went silent for 400 years. And then, an angel named Gabriel comes, and he visits two relatives, an elderly couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, and a teenager named Mary. And Luke describes Zachariah and Elizabeth as these righteous in the sight of God. They observed all of God's commands and decrees blamelessly. Zechariah was a priest or a pastor. He was chosen to go and go to the temple and burn incense at the time when all the worshipers of God would assemble and pray. This is a pretty big deal, right? So it's like the highest of highest of honors. And I can imagine that Zechariah was pretty humbled, that Zechariah was really probably honored. But I wonder if Zechariah also felt a little respected a little important. And there, the angel Gabriel comes, and it terrifies him. And he tells him that his wife, who is old in her age, is going to have a baby. He says, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. This is good news of hope, right? The tension of that cord. Maybe it's being released. And he tells him that his wife is going to have this baby and to name him John. The the angel announces the hope brought through this child. And he says that your son John will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, and he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or unfermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And for all the ladies who've been kicked in their belly while they are pregnant, was like, that sounds amazing. And he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and to the disobedient, to the wisdom of the righteous or the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Oh, can you guys feel that cord, the tension releasing? This is good news of hope, right? The release from the tension that's being pulled for so many years, for 400 years, all the people, especially the priests, 
have been waiting for God to speak, to come, to deliver, to heal, to make things right again. And Zachariah and Elizabeth knew all of this. They knew this tension, this expectation for decades when they've been hoping for a baby. Now, y'all, they had to wait, right? They knew what it was to wait. They couldn't go and zip over to Rite Aid and get a pregnancy test to find out right away. Every time they tried, every time they tried, they had to wait for it. They learned hope. So what is this wise, godly, seasoned pastor's response? <laughs> I think it's the thinking emotion. Zachariah says this, how can I be sure of this? Now, there's a bit of disbelief and dismissiveness in his statement. I'm not so sure what you're saying is true, celestial being. Who says that to an angel? Has he gotten so pious that he has completely lost his marvel for the miraculous divine? Why would Zechariah respond like this? I wonder if there was a strong emphasis on the I. How can I be sure of this? I'm asking you, Gabriel, angel sent from God, prove it to me. He might have even thought, do you know who I am? I am the one in the temple burning the incense. I'm pretty big hot stuff. I have studied and I have taught the scriptures back and forth for a really long time. I don't really have anything else to learn. How can I be sure of this? Angel, convince me. But before we get too judgy-judgy on Zechariah, we remember that people are complex. It could have been that they had been trying or hoping for a child also meant that there was great disappointments. How many miscarriages? How many false alarms? Was there even a stillborn? And those disappointments make one not just feel Helpless, but hopeless. And I have been there. The disappointments can easily move someone to stop looking for the miracles. It could be that Zachariah was just feeling his age. Maybe secretly he was like, yeah, I did want a kid, but now I'm older. And I kind of don't want that intense responsibility of caring for a little one. My back hurts. <laughs> I ain't got as much energy. So all the grandparents are like, mm-hmm. My child will end up being orphaned at a young age. Elizabeth and I are pretty set in our ways. It's always just been us. We're not really into too much change. Don't shake my comfortable routines, please. Maybe he had been looking for the signs of the Messiah. 
Maybe he had been hoping so hard for the rescue from all this evil and injustice. They're in the presidency of King Herod. Maybe he had been hoping for so long that he just got let down so many times. He just didn't want to get his hopes up again. I don't know. It could have been one of these things. Could have been some, could have been none, could have been all of it. But what we do know is we know that he did not believe the Annunciation of Hope. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you're going to be silent and not be able to speak until this day happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. And the angel leaves. Six months later, believe it or not, Elizabeth is pregnant. I mean, she's pregnant, and then six months later, she's pregnant. Six months pregnant. And the angel Gabriel goes back to another human who also had been waiting, who had been hoping, and announces great hope. He goes to Mary, a young, poor, virgin, engaged teenager, every contrast to Pastor Zachariah. And the angel announces hope again and says, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. I love that Gabriel names Mary. You who are highly favored. Throughout the biblical story, God names people when there is something great that's about to happen or there's an offer of a promise of hope. And what is this poor, young, teenage, virgin, engaged teenager response? The wow emoticon. I bet she's like texting her friends. Guess what just happened? Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, while Zachariah has a bit of, do you know who I am? response, Mary has the, who am I? response. Who am I that you would think of me so highly? What kind of greeting is it that you would call me favored? And the angel gives us annunciation of hope. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have been found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, which means Savior. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. And unlike the kings that did good and died, his kingdom will never end. Amen? The 
tension is being released. And how does Mary respond? How will this be since I'm a virgin? How will this be? What a contrast, right? I was doing a drawing over Thanksgiving as I was reflecting on this. The contrast of Zechariah's disbelief of how can I be sure of this? Prove it to me. Versus Mary saying, how will this be? How is this going to happen? Tell me more. I believe you. I have hope. I am waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. I'm not hoping for a change in circumstances necessarily. I am hoping in a person, the Messiah, the Savior, and the character of my good and faithful God. Now this is true biblical hope. Zechariah disbelieves, maybe out of his own posture and privilege where he's standing. How will I be sure of this? He disbelieves, and you know what happens to Zechariah? He loses his voice. Mary, full of hope, believes. And what happens to Mary? She finds her voice. She sings the Magnificat, proclaiming as the first Christian belief in God who's coming to rescue all. But hope doesn't end here for Zechariah. Somehow we have been taught that young people lack spiritual depth and older folks are so stuck in their ways that they can't grow and change. That's a lack of hope. God is able to do anything in anyone, anytime, amen? Come on, y'all, this is good news. God is able to do anything, anytime, in anyone, Amen? And teen Mary shows this tremendous insight as a young person as she ponders these things in her heart. And Zechariah is silenced and is forced to listen to others for nine months. And when he speaks again, not only is their child John born, but Zechariah births something new, a new song of praise and of prophecy and of hope which is a story we're going to visit later in the Advent series. That is hope. God is at work, and God is good, and God can do the impossible. And today we get to hear more of those stories on hope. I'm excited to invite our storytellers um, up. Um, our first one is Ann Norris. Um, so let's welcome her with a big <laughs> welcome. So I've never really identified with Zechariah before, and some of that I didn't identify with, but the doubting part I did. Um, so my story is really about um, the first silent retreat here at West Hills. Uh, people who know me know I really love silent retreats. But that, that first one, I'd never heard of a silent retreat, had no idea what it would be like. 
was mildly curious, but had no plans to go. Um, I was in a really low point. I was struggling with depression for, again, really. I think I kind of alternated between being angry at God and doubting God's existence. And I remember thinking that it would be silly to go to this retreat and think that somehow I had a right to think that God would do anything for me at it. So when I got up the Saturday morning of the retreat, I had no plans to come. But for some reason, I woke up early, and I needed to get some files from my office, which was downtown. And I thought, well, if I go early, I can park right in front of the building. It doesn't, I don't have to pay for parking. I can get my files and get out of there. And somehow, after I got those files, I found myself thinking, well, the retreat hasn't started yet. I guess I could go ahead and go. Um, people who know me nobody know that spontaneity is not exactly my strong point. But for some reason, I decided to come. And so I got here, and um, they kind of talked us through what the day would be like. It was really about a half-day retreat. And they did a reading, and then they sent us out anywhere on campus we wanted to go. And it was a beautiful spring day. It was like the perfect day. Sunny, warm, just a little bit of a breeze. It wasn't too hot. And uh, I sat out there, and they had given us some verses that we could read, and um, I'd looked at some of those. And then they gathered us together again in the library, I think it was, and we were in a circle in chairs, and at each chair there was an orange. And Melinda, who was leading this part of the retreat, said, now, you know, really pay attention to this orange. Look at it, smell it, feel it, just, you know, really pay attention to it. And I thought to myself, oh, I hate stuff like this. <laughs> but I looked at the orange, and, you know, it was a really nice, nice round orange. orange. And I kind of sniffed it a little bit, didn't really smell anything. Started rolling it around in my hands. And on the other side, there was a big blemish. And I kind of laughed to myself and said, oh, it's just like me. And so then she said, well, let's start peeling the orange. And so I start peeling mine. And in a minute, she says, feel the juice running down your hands. And she was sitting next to me, and I looked at her, and sure enough, it's just juice. It was like a mess, really. And I looked back at my orange, and it was dry, not a drop. And I thought, wow, this really is just like me. And then she said, so go ahead and tear apart the orange and, you know, taste it. Really experience the orange. So I opened up the orange, and in the very center of the orange, there was still some good orange. There were um, sections. I took a section, and I took a bite, and it was still sweet. And a voice in my head said, and you're also really like this. And I remember the feeling of, of hope that that gave me at that moment. But um, like Zechariah, I kind of doubted, and I thought, is that really God speaking to me? Was that really a promise from God that there is hope for me? And um, or was, did I just make that up? Did I just kind of extend the analogy to where I wanted it to go? So I kind of um, chewed on that, didn't know what to do with it. They sent us back out for another time of silence. So I went back and not knowing what else to do, went back to reading some of the verses they had given us. And one of them was in Isaiah, and so I read it, and then, not knowing really what else to do, I just kept reading in Isaiah. And then I got to a verse that, for me, told me then and really ever since then that, yes, it really was possible 
that God not only could, but was willing to talk to me and that I'd be able to hear. And this is the verse I read. It's Isaiah 65, 8. This is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes, and men say, don't destroy it, there is yet some good in it, so will I do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I'd like to invite Connie and Martin Hellison on up. This is my personal journey um, as a mom of hope and thanksgiving. Ten years ago, my daughter Jennifer, 29 years old at the time, was diagnosed with acute intermittent porphyria. AIP is a rare and inherited blood and liver disorder. With this diagnosis, my biggest fear was realized. I had passed this debilitating and life-threatening disorder to her. Jennifer suffered from continual attacks for eight and a half years. Frequent hospital stays were the norm. Her pain was excruciating. She was nauseated. She vomited. Her muscles were weak. Her blood pressure skyrocketed. She was confused and hallucinated. She couldn't sleep. She was exhausted. We were exhausted. She couldn't work. She was depressed. She had to taper off pain meds over and over again. This was the cycle. I prayed, we prayed, an army of people prayed. I cried. I fell into total despair. But people kept praying. In times of despair, God would show his ever-loving presence via someone or something every single day. For Martin, call him St. Martin, because he picked me up over and over and over. To my sister, who's here visiting today, who was on the crying end of every phone call I made to her, the doctors, the nursing staff, family visiting other family, staff in the infusion clinic, other people that I'm sure I, I had no idea that were praying for Jennifer and us. My daily reading from Jesus Calling was a gift from an angel friend. It was a lifeline as I read God's promises and goodness each day. So grateful for good medical insurance. Jennifer's hospital stays helped to manage her pain and other symptoms. At the hospital and in between hospital stays, she received hematin infusions to help suppress her attacks. Her hospital expenses reached a million dollars a year. Jennifer and I traveled to New York to enroll in research studies at Mount Sinai Hospital. In between attacks and treatments, Jennifer tried to find normalcy in her life. She met and married a wonderful guy, Jesse, so calming and full of strength. They have two very sweet dogs named Figgy and Pippin, and Figgy has made at least one visit to the hospital. She never leaves Jennifer's side when Jennifer is sick and at home.
They have supportive friends and other family as well. Two years ago, reading the newsletter for the American Porphyria Foundation, the foundation that advocates tirelessly for people who have porphyria, I read about a young woman whose story almost mirrored Jennifer's. She had AIP and was participating in a drug trial that was in a phase two. We were able to contact her and talk to her about her experiences. She was receiving a monthly injection as part of that drug trial and she was getting amazing relief from her attacks. With the help of the foundation, Jennifer applied to be a participant in the phase three of the drug trial. 18 months ago, Jennifer was accepted into that trial for a drug called Gavoserone by Anilum Pharmaceuticals. She has flown to Seattle each 28 days for doctor's appointments, testing, monitoring, and injections. For the first six months, we did not know whether she would receive the placebo or the real thing. But when her attack subsided, we knew early on that she had to be getting the real drug. For 17 months, she was hospital-free, not completely symptom-free, but she had over, no overnight stays. Jennifer and Jesse were able to travel and find some new normalcy in their lives. Jennifer, in expressing some positively recently, wrote a note to my sweet mom, sharing two good things to come out of porphyria. She never gets a cold, and mosquitoes do not bother her. <laughs> Last month, Jennifer had an attack and was in the hospital five days. It was rough. She experienced symptoms that we had wanted to forget about, and even some new ones. Depression set in once again. Then in our days of despair, God gave us this huge gift. Ten days ago, the FDA approved Gavrosterone for the treatment of the acute porphyrias. And Jennifer is one of 94 very brave people in this world who were in the trial. She is just truly a medical hero. The pharmaceutical company can now pivot from the drug trial and seeking FDA approval to making this drug commercially available. They also received an orphan drug des designation which provides incentives to assist and encourage the development of drugs for rare diseases. We are so grateful for the American Porphyria Foundation, the doctors and the staff at Providence and at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And we know two things. AIP will be in our lives forever, but we also know that God will be us, with us forever. We do have hope. We are thankful, and we praise God for what he is doing in our lives. you hoping? Where is the state of tension in your life where you're waiting for something to happen or to be released? Is there a place of barrenness 
that you're hoping God will birth new life. Don't give up on looking for miracles. Not because circumstances or people will necessarily change, but because we depend and trust on the faithfulness of God's character. After Mary hears and believes the angel, she responds with this. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Let's pray.